Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gonsler. Now, today's episode takes us into the sixth inning of Game 3, where we sit down with two guests today. Okay, um, Sean Wagner is an assistant at UW-Milwaukee, and Steve Bartline is an assistant at UW-Whitewater. Uh, this episode goes into uh, the college baseball front of the state of Wisconsin and two of the strongest programs in the state. Uh, both Wags and Barty are Wisconsin born and raised kids. Um, both played for Hall of Fame WBCA Hall of Fame high school coaches and played their college ball um, and are now coaching at their alma mater. Both coaches go into their role on staff currently, um, some of the position groups that they coach on, on both sides of the ball, uh, on defense and on offense, and also their role in recruiting. Um, both Wags and Barty also just talk about some of the trends that they're seeing and a lot of baseball content. You know, as, as we, as a lot of us coaches just got back from Chicago for the uh, ABCA convention, which was fantastic. And I'm really excited to get this episode out there uh, to the listeners. One more reminder to subscribe and share and um, continue to pass the show along as, you know, Barty and Wags just share so much. They have a great relationship with each other and they do so much for baseball across the state of Wisconsin. So without further ado, uh, today's episode, again, uh, sixth inning of game three with Sean Wagner and Steve Bartline. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Good. Great. Beautiful. Thanks for coming out with us. Well, um, we'll start with Wags. Why don't you tell us um, where you're from and kind of how you started your playing and coaching career? So I hail from Lebanon, Wisconsin, small town outside of Watertown, um, and attended Watertown High School. Um, graduated back in 2005. Um, played for now, going into the Hall of Fame, Rusty Tiedemann uh, this year, which is exciting. So looking forward to that night to, to celebrate him. Um, but played high school there, played on varsity for four years, kind of a circumstantial thing, had a situation happen in town where our, our catcher was not available for the season. I guess we'll leave it at that. Um, so I got promoted up and um, learned a lot right away as a freshman, obviously being thrown into that. Um, and was able to, to have a good career there and then had the opportunity to walk on at UW-Milwaukee. Um, was here for five years, ended up getting hurt my first year. Um, the week before we were going on our first trip, I actually sprained my, my UCL. So I ended up redshirting and then played the next four years, which was looking back at it, probably a blessing in disguise. Cause at 18, I don't think I was ready for this level. Um, it was moving a little quick. There was a lot of things I didn't understand. And um, having that time on the bench to kind of soak it in and sit in the bullpen and learn from the coaches and the players helped a lot. Um, but then I was able to have a productive career. I feel like um, my first couple of years, I, I played pretty well. Um, was a, I think maybe an all conference guy my second year. Um, but then my junior year put a lot of uh, thought and pressure on myself, having talked to some professional people and looking back really was just kind of a hindrance on myself and my team. So that year we didn't do so well. I didn't do so well. Um, tough pill to swallow, but I think that taught me a lot. And then ended up having a good senior season where we went to the regional in 2010. And um, yeah, I had a good year that year and it didn't, necessarily happened right away it took an injury to one of our our middle of the order hitters for me to realize kind of I was being selfish I guess you could say thinking about myself more so than my team and that wasn't normal for me 
Um, so some Tim Patsman getting hurt kind of set my final year, my final career trajectory um, on a positive note. So he doesn't know it, but thanks, Tim, for getting hurt because that helped me. Um, and then from there, um, I got to go to Minnesota State Mankato, and I was a graduate assistant coach for two years, got my master's, um, and was able to be part of a winning program there, where in the second year we went to the Division II College World Series and finished in third place. Um, during those two summers, I coached back here in Wisconsin. So one summer, uh, I believe it was the summer of 2012, I was the head coach of the Sheboygan A's in the Wisconsin State League. Learned a lot going through that. Um, and then the second summer, 2013, I was actually on Coach Vodenlich's staff for the inaugural uh, Lakeshore Chinooks team in Mequon. So both of those really good experiences taught you baseball a different way uh, when it comes to summer ball compared to the college route. Um, and apparently I did something right that summer because there was an opening at Whitewater and Volk called me and, and I was fortunate enough to get hired there um, literally the day before classes started. Uh, so I had nothing with me. I lived in my parents' house for two weeks with like two things of clothing and um, started my career there. Obviously, we were successful, uh, successful there as well. Coach Bartline was on some of those teams, um, but we were able to win the national championship in 2014. Just a great group of guys that were bought in and, and did whatever it took to win. And then after five years there, um, my alma mater called. My former head coach, my pitching coach, had an opportunity to come back here and work with them and, and try to make it better than it was when I left. And that's hopefully something that I'm able to do every day when I show up to work. So that's kind of my history where I'm from, how I got here. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Barty, what about you? Give us your background. Before I, I get started on mine, um, you know, it's kind of unique to be on this podcast with uh, Coach Wags, as, you know, obviously he did coach me for a year over at Whitewater. And it was kind of a cool scenario because um, I had met him over the summer when he was coaching with Coach Boldenlich. And I remember that first interaction being like, and that's a, that's a baseball guy, you know, and he's a, he's a really cool guy. And, um, after that conversation, you know, I had remembered him and then it was probably about three or four weeks later. I don't know if you remember this Wags, but I think you were walking in for either your first day or an interview. <laughs> and I ran into you on campus and, you know, you had shared that you were coming over to coach with us. And, um, yeah, that was a awesome, awesome thing for us and for my senior year to bring you on board. So, uh, it's kind of cool that just a couple of years later we're on this together, but, as far as my journey, I'm from South Milwaukee, and uh, I think one common theme between uh, Wags and I is the impact that a lot of our coaches had on us. I had a, a really awesome opportunity to play for a guy by the name of John Galeski at South Milwaukee, and uh, he's it just you know means everything to the community. And uh, he and Coach Weber um, ran a great program, and I got a chance to you know be a player in that program. And, uh, you know, be a captain in that program. And so that was something I think that really helped me as a player and as a person. After high school, I went to UW-Whitewater and played for Coach Vodenlich out there. Uh, in that time, we had, you know, some really tremendous teams. I got an opportunity to play in a lot of postseason games. Uh, I got a trip to the World Series in 2011. Got a trip to Europe with the team. And, you know, I just, as you look back, it's a long list of, of really awesome experiences. And through that, uh, you know, those two really kind of molded my motivation to go into teaching, go into coaching. And so I, after graduating from Whitewater, went to uh, teach, went to teach in the Elmbrook district. And 
right away. My, my first, one of my first calls I think I got in that district was from Jeff Bigley and he's the head coach over at Brookfield central. And, you know, going back, I had taken hitting lessons with Jeff growing up and pitching lessons with Corey. And so I knew the Biglers really well. And that was something that was, you know, a, a, really a blessing because I was able to get started as a, a JV head coach with Brook Central that year. And the varsity team that year actually went on to win state. And I got a chance to be in the dugout and, and with the team through the playoff run, which was, you know, just a, a tremendous experience. Spent three years at Brookfield Central. And in that fourth year, I was intending on going back. An opportunity opened up at the school I was teaching at, which was Brookfield East. And so I ended up um, being able to take over the, the program over at Brookfield East, uh, thanks to Ben Westfall, the athletic director there at the time. And that was just, you know, another, another one of those experiences where I got to learn a lot <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of getting into the job and really it was like late December, I realized how much, you know, a high school head baseball coach does. And it's, uh, was quite an experience learning about the ropes of fundraising and, um, you know, the, the, the struggles of open gyms and all of those different scheduling conflicts. And so, um, it was, it was a great experience and, and something that, um, you know, I look back to really fondly. And during that same time, I had gotten a chance to serve as a, an assistant coach as a part-time assistant over at Carroll university for coach rear, who was actually another one of those assistants we had at whitewater during my playing days. And so I had some collegiate experience and some, some high school experience. And then I got an opportunity to, to go to back to my alma mater at UW whitewater when coach Wagner took the job over at UWM. And so, um, Wags, you do know this, but, uh, Thanks a lot because since you left your your role, I was able to to move into that role, and it's my fifth year there now, and it's been a great experience so far. Outstanding. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, before I get into your playing careers, one again, a tie that binds you guys obviously is Whitewater, but also you're looking at your high school coach. You know, you have two Hall of Fame high school coaches here. And from what I know of those two guys from, from John and then from Rusty is two very different personalities as well. So it shows there's different ways to do things. So all the coaching you've done, like look back on your high school career, like what have you learned now from your high school head coach? Wags, why don't you get us started? Yeah. So uh, Rusty was pretty in your face. He held you accountable. Um, and honestly, most of the coaches we had in Watertown at that time were kind of that similar stat, uh, stature where they would love you, but they, they weren't scared to hold you accountable. Um, and that's something that I've always held with me. It's, it's not necessarily easy to do at times. It's not necessarily my personality type. Um, I'm huge on relationships and, and building those and just trying to get to know someone. So crossing that boundary sometimes of having to get in their face can can set me off the wrong way, I guess. Um, but I, I think it's something that really benefited me. And um, he was really good at being fundamental with everything. We were taught fundamentals. Um, if we made a mistake, it wasn't going to be because we didn't know how to do something. We were taught everything down the line from A to Z uh, when it came to our coaching staff. So I was very fortunate in that manner. Um, obviously, he was a very successful player himself. He's a very good coach. His dad was a very good coach. So 
lots of knowledge that was able to be passed on to us. Um, some people say there's, there's players, coaches, and there's dictators. I mean, I guess you'd call him a dictator just on the, the kind of coaching style. But when it came down to it, he has a huge heart and he was a player's coach because I had to have many conversations with him in my lifetime that really helped get me to where I'm at today. So for that, I'm very thankful and I, I try to carry that with me everywhere I go. And Barty, what about you? John Galeski. Yeah, so a couple things come to mind. Uh, one would be energy. One would be being in the moment and the third would be a community or, or you know, being a part of something bigger than you. Um, from an energy end, I remember going to a, a game when I was an eighth grader. And at the time, it was either Nate Marlowe or Sam Schaus. Hits a ball into the right center gap. <clears throat> and they're rounding first, headed to second. And Coach Galeski is on all fours, banging the ground, yelling to get three. And I remember thinking, that is awesome. You know, the energy he had in the third base coach's box um, was something that was contagious to all the guys that had a chance to be coached by him. And I think he got that a lot from kind of a multi-sport background. You know, he coached football, coached basketball. And, you know, he understood that, you know, projecting energy was a big part of coaching and a big part of leading. And so that was something that he really did an awesome job with. Um, being in the moment, you know, he, he worked outside of the school. And so, you know, when he came to practice or to games, he was coming right out of, out of the shop basically. And, you know, he never brought anything into practice or games from that. You know, he always was really, really good about separating those two things. Um, and then the third one is that bigger than you component. We actually, I, I teach one of the courses over at Whitewater that, that Wags used to teach. And in there, we talk about, you know, influential coaches. And I always bring up this example of, of Coach G. Um, you know, coaching multiple sports throughout the year and it just being an example of his, you know, appreciation for the community and, and what he's been able to do for it. Um, you know, even to the lengths of you know, coaching football and baseball and basketball, and then even picking up the seventh grade rec team on a Saturday morning to coach that team, you know? And so I think energy being in the moment and that, that idea of being, you know, that the community is bigger than you is what I've been able to draw from him. Beautiful. Um, well, Barty, I'm actually going to come back to you on, on this one. Um, the more and more I do this, more and more coaches I interview, I'm convinced that their coaching style is tied to who they were as a player. So I want you to go back to your playing days a little bit. Like, give you your scouting report on you, maybe a, a, a comp, and you know, like, who, who kind of player were you? Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I think you know everyone's got unique ways that they get into the game and, and unique ways that they find success. And I'll tell you, when I look at my journey from high school through college, one of those things for me was, was really um, kind of growing up in a way. And I don't mean growing up mentally. I mean, I mean, growing up physically, um, you know, as a high school player, I was very small. I was undersized. Um, you know, I remember one of the guys on our high school team joking with me because my driver's license being, I think it was five, seven, one thirty was what he was when in seventh grade. And, and so, you know, I didn't start off as a, a really, you know, physical player, um, but I had to work. And so I think as a player, I was, I was trying to make up for that by being a fundamental player and trying to be a student of the game. And so those are two things that I think, you know, as I began to physically, you know, develop, I was able to, you know, make up for 
other shortcomings in my game by being a fundamental player and, and knowing what I'm doing on the field. Um, so I think those are kind of two ways to describe me as a player. And, you know, I think my, my abilities on the field started to really come through as I began to, to, to become more physical. And I think in my end of my college career, I, you know, really became one of the better players that, that I could, you know, really become. And one of those things too, is I go back to a mentality of, um, of always trying to, you know, keep progressing and keep working. Um, Coach G always told me, he said, Stevie, your best years are going to be when you're 22, 23, 24. It's just the way it is. And so I always kept that in my mind when I was you know, 16, 17, 18, and, and maybe not the best player on the field at the time. Uh, but I knew if I kept working, I could be that guy uh, in the future. And so I think, yeah, that's, that's kind of a good way to describe my makeup. Great. Thank you. Um, Wags, what about you? Uh, I was a defensive minded catcher first, I would say, um, didn't have very good vision at the plate. Um, but I did have some back control. So I was able to, to find some barrels at times, uh, kind of a gap to gap guy, not really much of a power guy, kind of like Steve. I was, I would say I was undersized. I was, I was a little bit bigger at the time. Thankfully I was probably five, 10, 165, 170. Um, yeah, just a monster of a man, you know, um, but really what made me a good player in my mind and, and what I've heard from coaches in the past is I think it was kind of like he said, being a student of the game and using my instincts and my intellect, really um, just understanding the game in different ways. I had always grown up with an older brother and um, people that I, I kind of admired in high school watching their games. Um, I always felt like I watched it with a different kind of an eye as compared to just an average fan, like always just trying to find a little nuance or a little tip or a little tell in the game that can kind of give you that advantage. Um, so that's kind of who I was. I mean, if I'm, I'm going to count myself to a professional player, it's like a Brad Osmus or a Martin Maldonado, where I'm going to give you a little bit with the stick, but it's going to be more so a benefit behind the dish and, and working with the pitching staff. And I think as a, as a coach, that's kind of the way I've, I've leaned as well. It's how can I help my team win um, by picking up on little nuances of the game or giving them tips or, some sort of an, an intellectual hint towards the game that can kind of get them to the right spot. And ultimately the players win the games. Um, our, our job as a coach is just to try to set them up for success. So anything that we can do um, from a mindset, from an approach, um, those are the things that are going to help the teams win. So that's something that I try to help with uh, heading into games. Well, that's a good transition. So let's get, let's get into coaching. Um, so Wags, what, what position groups do you coach and maybe kind of dig into some of the philosophy and drills, um, you know, when coaching that position group? Yeah. So defensively, I work with the catchers. I was a catcher my whole life until I got here to Milwaukee. Um, even little league, I don't, didn't really do anything besides catch when I got to high school, probably had one of the better arms on the team. Um, but coach Tiedemann always told me if I could find a catcher, to catch me, that was as good as myself. I could get on the mound, and we just didn't have that in the program, I guess. Um, so once I got here, I was a, a catcher only up until the end of my career when we had some injuries, and um, we just had to find ways to get people on the field to, to help the team win. So I, I kind of moved to the outfield a little bit. Um, but catching is where my heart is. That's kind of who I've always been. So that's something that I work with here. And even at the division one level, I think we're pretty fortunate in that way. Um, high school for sure. 
a lot of colleges, I don't think catchers get one-on-one individual time with just a specific catching coach. And to me, it's probably the most important position on the field. If you were to ask me now, I'm slightly biased in that. Um, but really it's the brain trust behind the plate that sees everything going on. So the way that we kind of talk about it is we want to be the leader, right? We want to be tough. We want to be strong. We want to be flexible. We want all these types of things, but we have to be selfless, uh, selfless servants behind the plate. It's about helping the pitcher on the mound. It's about helping the pitchers in the bullpen when you're not playing. Um, it's the bullpen time for two hours at it on some days that you just have to give yourself up, you know? And if you look at it the right way as a, as a coach, especially you have plenty of opportunity to make yourself better in those bullpens. It's just a matter of buying into it and actually loving the process, right? Because everyone sees the catcher on game day that's out behind the plate and the success that the pitcher's having, but that pitcher might have success because of the backup or the bullpen guy and the work that they've been putting in. Um, so everyone in our program from catcher one to catcher four or five, whatever we have is, is working out the exact same way. And we're trying to be defensive minded first and then use our strengths in the box to help us get on the field. Um, but the way that we kind of break it down is if we took the four a- aspects, the way that we would break them down is receiving, blocking, throwing, hitting, right? Receiving, you're going to catch at our level. You're probably catching around 160 pitches a game. So how many times can we, as we call it, we don't want to steal a strike. We want to keep a strike a strike. And that's our mindset is we're not going to frame balls. We're not going to try and pull a ball into the zone. We're going to try and hold a strike in the zone. And some umpires, that's five inches outside. But we have to have the mindset that we're only framing strikes. And that's kind of the way that we work on it. So we try to beat the ball to the spot. We work against the grain of the pitch. So if it's on my glove side, I'm going to get outside the pitch and catch into it hold it in the zone. Um, that bowling ball sinker, we're trying to get underneath it and make sure it doesn't drop us out of the zone. Um, so that's kind of what we do with the catchers. And, and we do a lot of receiving work when we get inside. Um, we don't have a great indoor facility for baseball only. It's not a big turf area. So we don't do a ton of blocking besides maybe form or fundamental. We can't really slide around the place. So we do a ton of receiving. We do a lot of throwing footwork. Um, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to produce proper spin on our throws and be accurate. Obviously arm strength is huge. It's a plus, but if we can't get it out on time, if we can't get it out on target, it doesn't matter. Right. So we do a lot of just footwork efficiency and spin with the baseball. Um, so that's kind of what it comes to with, with our catchers. We do a lot of bare hand stuff, tennis balls, med balls, all kinds of stuff. All right. Let me jump in here for a second. Um, on the catching side, um, two, two questions about receiving one, the old quest, the question of 2021, right? Knee down traditional stance. I like to go there. And then number two at your level, you know, with the umpires, the guy who's beyond the plate, what kind of information do you have about his zone going into the game? So the first question, uh, one knee down versus traditional. I mean, I guess you consider myself a, a little bit more of a traditionalist still. Um, I'm okay with one knee down if you're really good at it and you're not hindering your mobility. The problem I have with it is even at our level, we're a division one school, but we're not the top division one school in the nation. So we have pitchers that have arm strength. We have pitchers that are command guys. We have a a variation of all these guys. And there's some guys that you can feel a little bit more comfortable with hitting a spot. And then there's guys that you better be a, a wall back there and just try to block it like a goalie in the hockey game. Right. 
Um, so it really kind of depends on who the catcher is, what's their asset to the team as far as flexibility and mobility, and then what kind of pitcher do we have on the mound? Um, if, if we take our, our Friday guy from last year, Riley Fry, true freshman, really good year, that guy's misses are going to be within five inches, you know? So that guy you can trust a little bit more versus a guy who's maybe 95, but yanks everything. And then he's arm side and you just don't know where it's going. Then you have to be a little bit more um, fundamental in our receiving. Um, but what I tell our guys is if we have runners on base or if we get to a two strike situation, I want you being as traditional as possible, just because Number one, we're going to have to be able to throw. And I know you can throw from one knee down, um, but it's not something that we work on a ton. But more so, you got to be able to block a ball and keep the runner at first. You can't let them have the extra base. So when it comes to that, that's where I believe in the traditional a little bit more is it just allows you to do more things and be more agile and mobile um, based on the pitchers that we're, we're typically getting. And then number two, man, this is my brain. I don't even remember number two. I was asking about the um, information you have on the guy behind the plate, the umpire behind the plate, and just how that shapes your scouting report for your catcher that day. Yeah, so really what it comes down to is we don't have like a report or anything like the MLB, but what we do have is a head coach who's been here for 20, I think, seven years now, um, and a pitching coach who's been doing it almost as long. And we know the umpires for the most part that we get, so we kind of have a feel for it. Um, it's no different than high school. Every day that we woke up and we came to our game and we saw Kirk call behind the plate, we knew we had three inches down and five inches outside, you know? So that's the goal of our catchers. And what we tell them is have a relationship with the umpire, um, be personable. Don't ever try to show them up. But by the end of that first inning, we got to know what are you seeing from their strike zone, right? What can we exploit? What can we take advantage of? What can we push a little bit? Are they giving you some? Or are they really tight? And same thing, our catchers have to relay that to the hitters because if we're the home team, for say, and we've already seen a half of an inning behind the plate, there's no reason we shouldn't understand kind of where that strike zone's at. All right, thank you. All right, before we get to the offensive side of the ball, Barty, I want to hear about, um, I'm guessing you're, you coach the infielders. Tell us about the defensive side of the ball you coach. Yeah, so for from a coaching standpoint, how it works is everything's really a, a top-down approach at Whitewater. So coach, everything starts with coach Bodenlich. And off of that, all of the, all of us assistants have assigned, you know, really, I guess, specific groups that we work with. And so I get an opportunity to work with our pitchers, our catchers, our infielders, our outfielders. Um, I mean, primarily my, my lead role would be with the offensive piece of the game and the hitters, but from a defensive end, I, I do work very closely with coach Hernandez and he's really our, our main defensive guy. He's been our defensive guy for over 20 years. I always joke he's the, the Kai Correa before Twitter. And, uh, you know, that's him. He's, he's a staple to Whitewater baseball, and he's a tremendous defensive coach. And so I've learned a lot from him. And when he's not there, I'm able to step in and, and be that guy as well. From a defensive philosophy standpoint, we try to keep things simple. We try to keep our guys athletic. And we teach them to try to use their hands and to adjust with their feet. And so that's kind of the simple nature of it. We use a lot of different drills that, you know, focus on having smooth hands and putting our body in a position to feel as many balls in zone one as we can. And that's, that's one of the things that we try to preach to our guys from a defensive standpoint. So when you talk about zone one, are we talking zone one is in front of you, zone two is glove side, zone three is backhand? Absolutely. 
Does Mondo still swing the best fungo in the country? I mean, is it, is, is it still prime? It's still pretty prime. Uh, I'm, I mean, every day I'm trying to, you know, trying to one up, one up him, but I think he's, you know, he's still got it going. All right. Before I get to the offensive side and Bardo, I'll come back to you. Like when a high school kid comes in, you know, most of our audience is high school coaches. When a high school kid comes in, where are the biggest deficiencies with the glove when in the infield? I think the, the glove positioning is one of the biggest deficiencies. Um, we see guys that, that tend to let their glove travel a lot, meaning they may start tall and, and really have a long distance to get down to the ball. Uh, that would be one. The second would be within the transition and the transition between the field to throw. Another thing we tend to see is a lot of distance between the field and then where they end up going to throw the ball. And so what we try to train is we try to train soft hands and then we try to train our feet so that they put us in a position where we don't have to let the glove travel so much. One of those adjustments could be teaching them to feel lower to the ground. We do a lot of mobility work with hurdles and, and uh, in the off season in the weight room. And that's a big thing that helps guys to, you know, have some more flexibility within their lower half. Sometimes we find that it might be tight and that doesn't allow them to get low. So allowing them to get in the proper position is a big thing. And then, really working a lot of different hand drills that allow them to get comfortable with the transition of the ball. And Wags, uh, thinking about the high school kid coming in as a catcher, what are the biggest deficiencies you're seeing, you know, um, behind the dish? Uh, overall, I think the hardest thing for the high school kids typically is having mobility while adding strength. Um, I think a lot of people preach get in the weight room, get in the weight room, get in the weight room. Um, but as a catcher, you can get strong. And if you lack mobility, you're going to have a tough time. I mean, we have a couple guys in our program right now that have seen huge gains. And really what it comes down to is we want to be able to get as low as possible, make ourselves as small of a target as possible to give the umpire the best look. So I see a lot of that. The other aspect is really just, yeah, they haven't seen this level of pitching typically, especially here in the state of Wisconsin. Um, we have a lot better talent. I feel like coming through a little bit more um, developed talent, thanks to a lot of these organizations and programs that are out there, they're getting access to training and becoming stronger earlier in their careers. Um, but it's just different style. It's more velocity, it's bigger breaks. It's all those types of things that they're just not used to seeing. I mean, I, I remember my senior year coming into college, I went and caught uh, the Brewers pre-draft camp and I thought I was a good player and I got there and I could not catch a fastball. Like I had never seen 96 before, you know, and 96 felt like 126. So I think that adjustment initially is probably the biggest thing. And then kind of like Barty said with glove placement, like there's just so many different things that have been taught or they've just never been taught proper ways to kind of get into a leveraged position to make the catch a strong way. Um, I see a lot of kids being dominated by the baseball and dominated by the pitch. And we, as a catcher have to do the opposite. We have to make sure that we're in control of the pitch and we're dictating where it ends up. And I will also say you compared uh, Armando to Kai Correa. I would call him fungo man before fungo man came around. Oh, I can't wait till he listens to this one. He's getting a lot, a lot of love from the boys. Um, so Wags, I'll come back to you on the offensive side. So what's your role on the offense position group and maybe get into some of the philosophies and things at Milwaukee baseball? Yeah, we, we kind of work together as a staff. Coach Duffix 
a really intelligent hitting mind. Um, he has been for years and he still kind of takes the lead on that. And my goal is just to kind of help in that development process and be a little bit more individual with the players, have conversations, kind of get to know strengths, weaknesses and build them up. Um, but overall as a program, um, if I had to sum up kind of like our approach or our philosophy, it's get to third base with one out. I mean, that's kind of the biggest thing we try to preach is if we can get a runner on third base with one out, there are numerous ways that we can score a run. And if we can score a run every inning, we're going to have a pretty good chance. Um, obviously, we're going to play for big innings. We want to have multiple runs on the board. Um, but scoring every inning gives you a pretty good chance to win. Um, another thing that we tell our guys quite a bit is your job as a hitter is to go up there with three things um, or th three things that we talk about, a mentality, an approach, and mechanics. And mechanics is probably the easiest thing to work on just because you have so much access to cages, especially now when it's cold and you're inside. Um, but we've kind of started phasing out of the mechanics a little bit and working more on the approach and the mentality. And if you walk up with a defeatist mentality to the plate, you're already out. I mean, you might as well come back to the dugout. So going up there with that mentality and then the biggest drills that we work on now are our approach drills, just timing and using sorts of the fields and based on count disciplines, those types of things. Um, so we'll, we'll use a lot of three plate drills where we're just moving space with the same pitch. So an 85 might seem like a 92 if you move up to the front plate and we want to use that to pull. So we have to think early. It's a 2-0 count, like don't get beat by this pitch. Then we'll move back to the back plate. And now 85 seems like 78 and it's a changeup. And our goal there a lot of times is two strike approach. Now we know it's slower, but it's also two strikes and we don't want to be early. So now we're trying to force it to, to get deep, see it late and hit it the other way. So just trying to dictate things that way. Um, where it's the exact same pitch. And if you think about it as a hitter, if it's the exact same pitch, but the only difference is distance, it seems kind of funky because I'm hitting 85 no matter what I think. I'm just moving up and I'm hitting 85. Or I'm moving back and I'm hitting 85. So um, that's really what it comes down to for us is just trying to get the guys in the right mental framework. Um, and I, we'll tell our on-deck hitter is the most important person in the game. When you walk up to the plate, the only thought you can think of is how can I make the situation better for the hitter on deck than I have it right now? So if it's a guy in second base and nobody out, I can bunt, I can hit the ball to the right side. Obviously you can hit him in. That's a perfect example. Um, but if we can make a situation better by having a productive out, that's what we want to do. So that's the easiest thing that we tell our hitters to think about as they walk towards that plate is look at the situation on, on hand right now. How can I make it better for that person on deck? What can I get them to, to put them in a better position to be successful in that scenario? That's great. Um, just kind of digging in a little bit more. Um, you know, cages are down. It's cold out, right? That's most of our season. We're in Wisconsin. You got multiple cages going on. Um, is typically, what are the cage setups? Or is it based on per day or what you're going to see on the weekend? Like, what's your typical setup? We have four cages here um, at the Klotchy that we'll use. We'll have a T cage typically. We'll have a, a front toss or a side toss, just kind of building from a progression. We'll have machines in there. We'll have breaking balls. We'll have live BP. Every, every single day we do something, we have one cage that we call overspeed, and that's taking a, a hack attack at 55 feet and cranking it up and putting it at the top of the zone with a fastball or 
thrown in absolutely disgusting right-handed slider that isn't even thrown in the game of baseball. But if we can overtrain our brains that way, then it can hopefully help slow it down when game time comes. And I think a lot of people, Barty, yourself included, when you go from in the cage inside every single day, and then you finally get outside in Wisconsin or in Florida or wherever you're at, that baseball turns a little bit more into a beach ball because typically you're trying to find it off of a gray or a white wall. Um, there's no backdrop. You don't have anything going for you. It's pretty bad lighting typically. And then all of a sudden it, it looks like you can't miss it, you know? So our goal is to kind of overtrain the brain at times um, and put guys in scenarios where there is a mechanical station, there's an approach station. Um, there's just one station where we just compete. Right. And on that overspeed, how we grade it is it's no contact, poor contact or great contact. And that's, and we'll just keep a running tally throughout the fall and throughout the spring. And you can't fake the numbers. I mean, they just kind of tell you what it is. And all we want to see is a slow progression of you getting better. You don't have to be great at it, but if you show progress and typically when we take our freshmen to our seniors and we show those numbers, it's kind of night and day. And hopefully that just helps slow the game down as well. Well, thank you for that. Appreciate that. Barty, let's, let's, let's go inside the whitewater offense. From an offensive end, I would say the key to the whitewater offense is being aggressive. I think coach Wags would agree with that. It's something that's really been consistent within the program over the last really two decades is, you know, approaching the game from an aggressive mindset, whether that be on base, whether that be at the plate and whether that be, you know, before going up to the plate. I think that's something that coach preaches and something that uh, we try to instill through drill work and through off-season practices that, you know, guys are looking for their opportunity and they're looking to make the best of that. From an individual standpoint, you know, we have our really our Warhawk baseball hitting philosophy that focuses on uh, a system of, of core drills uh, that's, we call it the blast system. This was before the blast metric um, device, but it's, it's really a, a system that, that focuses on our, our base, um, our load, our action, our swing, and our timing. And so we try to teach our hitters from a, a fundamental standpoint through those parameters. Uh, outside of that, really the, the main piece is we look at, at those parameters and then we, we try to find out what a guy's individual strengths are, what his weaknesses are, and then we try to build in drill work that's you know going to help them to, to work through those on a daily basis. Are there curtain, uh, certain like staple drills, on the, uh, hitting drills that you guys do consistently or every day that we would yeah. see you know, indoor practice? Yeah, so we call them our core four and we, we change them. Uh, slightly each year, but really one drill is, is always going to be like an isolated single arm drill. Uh, one's going to be a drill with some sort of constraint in it. So maybe starting from a balanced position or, you know, having some other implement in place. One's going to be a movement-based drill, maybe a walk-up. And then the third one is, is going to be focusing primarily on timing. So off a tee, that would just be taking what we call like a standard cut or a regular swing because by visualizing a pitch and taking that swing, we, we view that as being an opportunity to work on, on timing, even though the ball is stationary. Uh, and then we do those drills, you know, through tees, we'll do them through toss, we'll do them from a front toss, and we'll try to throw our hitters in a lot of different environments uh, to keep them, keep them guessing, keep them dynamic. Well, I'm going to circle back to you with this question I asked on defense, like the high school hitter comes in, you know, Barty, what do you see the biggest deficiencies 
you know, with, within their offensive approach or within their swing? Like, where do you see them behind offensively as high schooler? I think processing the at-bat is something that is always something we can talk with incoming guys about. One of the things that's been mentioned a couple of times by Coach Wags is just that that change in your competition and the speed of the competition. And one of the pieces to that is the consistency of it too. And so a, a high school hitter that maybe really likes hitting with two strikes and going in the box and, and just seeing pitches and then is comfortable to hit with two strikes, when they get to college, that that strike three could be a lot more nasty than what they're used to. And that pitcher might be able to place it in different spots. And and now all of a sudden that the high school hitter is not doing so well because their approach is not working at the next level. And so I think approach is something that is individually based and something that each guy has to reevaluate to some degree as they move up a level in the game. I mean, we want to keep them with what works and we should try to you know focus on their strengths, but that is one area I think that, you know, guys tend to have to make an adjustment in. I think fundamentally, I'll go back to what I talked about with the glove and with the feet, making things as efficient as possible is what we try to do. And oftentimes when guys come in with extra length in their swing and extra movements, those tend to get eaten up by velocity. They tend to get eaten up by movement and a little easier to exploit that type of hitter. So we try to make things as efficient and as simple as possible within their swings. My last question, last question for you on the offensive side is, and I don't know how much you can give away here, but like two-strike approach, right? Two-strike approach is, is, is a great debate, right? 50% of at-bats go to two strikes. Um, what are you willing to give us on the two-strike? Get the ball and play. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I think with two strikes, what we, we try to do is, um, you know, really, we don't, we don't try to shrink the zone by any stretch of it. Uh, with two strikes, we're going to have the same type of approach that we're looking for a pitch we can drive. And we're looking to spoil a pitch that's that's maybe borderline. You know, the guy's got to fight. And I think, you know, it's two strike approach is a lot like some other pieces to the game, maybe you know, blocking a ball, any kind of part of the game that involves, you know, an extra competitive piece to it, I think is when the, the better player is going to come up, come about with two strikes. I mean, it's a matter about protecting pitches around the zone and trying to drive a ball just like you would with any other count. Uh, but the only difference being now is that, you know, if, if you don't, you're going to be walking back to the dugout. And so having that, that mindset that I'm not going to let this guy beat me and I'm going to, you know, throw a ball in the gap just like I would in, on 2-0 is something that we want our guys to have when they go to the plate. And, and that's something that we, we hope they can, you know, put through their mind. Great. Wags, back to you. Um, where's the deficiency in the, in the high school hitter? And, uh, and I want to get some two-strike with you as well. Well, I will say in recent years, the deficiency has been the ability to get a bunt down. Um, I know when I was in high school, we bunted like every day. And I'm not saying high schoolers don't, but we're starting to get some guys in here that are maybe a little bit more in their high school years power guys. And I had the first time ever a guy tell me he's never once bunted in his life, um, which was incredible. I don't care if you're a, a four hitter that hits the ball over the fence every time, not ever having to bunt is your Barry Bonds next level. Um, but like Barty said, I think what gets exposed at our level is high maintenance swings, um, extra movements, big movements, trying to load up for that power. And then next thing you know, it's 
by you because you weren't on time. Um, so we do a, like whitewater, we try to be as efficient with our swing as possible, right? We want to be on time with efficiency as much as possible consistently. Like that's what sets up a good hitter. And at the same time, having adjustability in your swing, right? And that's where vision comes into it. So for us, vision is the most important part of hitting for us because you can't hit what you can't see. Um, I'm a testament to that. You throw me a right-handed slider back in the day and I didn't have contacts. I'm out, um, not just out, I'm not hitting it. Um, but we try to do a lot of things with vision that way. And when it comes to the high school hitter, I think like Barty said, the speed of the game and especially early in their careers, the game is fast. And a lot of times they're not able to slow down and see the situation at hand or on deck there's a little bit of nerves running in there. There's some antsiness and they're not really paying attention to the hitter before them. Right. Like we talked about earlier, if you just pay attention to the game, you can learn a lot of information without ever having to do anything. So in the dugout on deck circle, even when you're just in the field, watching the umpire zone, like there's so much information out there for you. If you just pay attention to it. And I think from the high schooler to the college level, that's probably a little bit of, of what's lacking because they're just not mature yet, right? They haven't gone through the ringer. They haven't seen how it goes. Um, we're playing 56 games in our regular season, right? That's a lot of baseball compared to high school. So the physicality of the game, bigger, faster, stronger, and then the wear down and the wear and tear on your body. A lot of times that's the hardest part for them. I wanted to dig in. Um, you talked about vision and vision training, and this is going to be a question for both of you eventually, but are there any like, training tools you use, if it's for vision or anything else that you think would be a wise investment for a high school program or any program? Go ahead, Marty. So from a vision standpoint, you know, I think something that really important for, for our game, obviously the, the nature of our game requires you to have good anticipatory vision. And what I mean by that is in our game as hitters, you know, you're not really going to be tracking that ball all the way to the barrel. We know that from a science standpoint, it's just not going to happen. You're anticipating where that pitch is going to, going to go based on where you see it in the early stages of its flight. And so what we really have to try to train is we have to try to train our eyes to anticipate locations. And so, you know, computer screens don't necessarily do a great job of that up front. I know there's some systems out there that, that really do try to, you know, help guys focus on what they're, what they're you know, trying to read. Um, occlusion, occlusion training, I know is one of those where you're going to see the startup of a, of a pitcher's motion. And then that right at about the point that we estimate where the location is going to be, or the pitch type is going to be, the you know, screen phases out. And then the, the hitter is able to select what they anticipate coming. And then in a kind of a quiz or classroom setting, they find out how good of anticipation they have. The only issue with that is that it's done on a computer screen and it's not done off a pitch and, and live. And so there's been some, some cool things I've seen in the past from a drill standpoint, I've seen, you know, coaches use projectors and put tees up using those, that type of occlusion training. Uh, we've done it where we've set up pitchers or partners outside of a cage, and then they've thrown a ball into a net and then the hitters hit it off the tee. Both of those I think are, are good ways to use vision within your drill set. You know, we've done things in the past where we've put numbers on the wall and had hitters stand up against the wall as if they're in their, in the batter's box and, you know, partners throw the ball towards the wall and the batter has to identify which zone it might've, you know, went into. And so those, those three drills, I think 
are maybe better than anything on paper just because they're actually putting the hitter in a position they'd be in the game. There, like I said, there's a lot of stuff out there that, uh, you know, can give you the, the vision training. Uh, Visual Edge, I believe, is one of those that's, that's out there right now. We don't use it as a program quite yet, uh, but I think anytime you're focusing on trying to, you know, gain an edge from a vision standpoint, it's a good thing. Just try to focus on allowing that vision training to be game-like. Wags, what about you? Anything uh, on the vision training side? We've used, um, I think it's called Game Sense in the past, similar to a Visual Edge type thing, um, kind of like Barty was just talking about. And it's it's beneficial um, based upon how much you use it. Um, we've used projectors with that where they're actually facing the projector and they have to make the decision as it's coming in. But like you said, you're not seeing a ball. So ultimately, we every time we throw a bullpen, especially in the spring, we have guys standing in there because we don't have the luxury to wait until April to start. Like we, we begin practice January 18th at Alabama A&M this year, and they'll be outside every single day. And we'll be in a gym watching our hitters throw. And that's the only way that we'll be able to see it outside of being able to practice over in Franklin and uh, face live at bats in a game that way. But the more you just get your eyes on actual pitches, the better off you're going to be. So what we'll do is we'll put them in there and um, we'll either use a verbal. It's either a, a yes or a no. And before the pitch gets to the, the glove of the catcher, they just have to say yes if they would swing or no if they wouldn't, i.e. ball strike. And the catcher just holds them accountable and says, you're right, you're wrong, you know. Or we'll actually move it the next step and they'll just have to initiate their swing when they would go or they have to shut it down when they wouldn't make it a little bit more game-like. But we've also had that in the past. I know at Whitewater we did that, and one of our hitters actually swung and hit the ball, which doesn't help. So um, you hope the players are smart enough not to do it, and I won't name yeah, we him. Got, got bullpen bats now. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's really the best, I think, is just as many reps as you can possibly see off a live arm where the timing aspect comes into play because you can, you can work off of a live pitcher. That's what makes machine hitting so hard is it's not easy to time, especially with a poor feeder, right? So the more you can see a live pitcher and actually see live pitches coming in at you, the better off I think you're going to be. Beautiful. Well, um, one of the questions I threw on here was, like, philosophically or anything within the game of baseball or leadership, is there something that you believe – that others might disagree with you on. Maybe you're in the, the, the minority, you know, in, in the baseball community. Um, Wags, why don't you start on that one? Well, I know I've had arguments over this plenty of time, but um, I always say catching is the backbone and most important position. And every pitching coach I've ever talked to has told me to pound sand because they're the most important. Um, but essentially, in my mind, like if, if you have a good pitcher, you can become an average pitcher or a great pitcher based on your catcher. Um, and I don't think that's a lie. I think that's a fact because if you have trust, if you have accountability behind the plate to know that you can throw your best stuff O2 and that catcher is going to block it, or you can let a guy get on base because you have a catcher behind the plate that's going to hold them, right? I think that can dictate a lot of the game for you and kind of put you at ease on the mound. So for me, that's, that's what I wrote down because I think the catching position is the most important. Um, I think you're the leader, the captain of the field. You're the only person that has every single play in front of you. Um, now you have to be good at diagnosing it and making the right calls. Cause if you don't have that, now you have a bad team too. Um, so that that's kind of the one that stood out to me. 
Well, I, I want to stay on catching for a second. It got me thinking about another, I don't know, I guess, hot topic in catching world right now is calling your own game, right? So when you, maybe at your level, you know, you got older guys, again, 22-year-olds, you know, full staff, Division One baseball, but down to the high school, like where are you at on, you know, a high school coach calling the game versus the pitcher? Like what would your recommendation be? I mean, I'm always for the catcher being able to call the game but I also understand that I wanted to win every single game too. So if I'm not capable of it and the coach feels we have a better chance with that, then the coach should call the game. But within that, I think you have the right to talk to your catcher every half inning, every game about why we did this, why this made sense in that situation. So that hopefully by the end of a career or a tenure, you can hand that over and get them better training for it. I think the best teams, um, the catcher calls the pitches, which then in turn gives you a better pace of play, which gives more confidence to the catcher. So I think all of it hand in hand works together well, but it, for us, I mean, this is our livelihoods. We're, we're coaching for our living to provide for our family. Um, so at the same time, like I can't put trust in a catcher that I can't think it's going to get us the best chance to win, you know? So I think it's, I think it's an either or kind of based on your personnel personally, but ultimately if you can hand that responsibility to your catcher, I know coach Tiedemann by the end of my career in Watertown, every pregame, I had a a binder. I had to look at every single hitter. This is how we're going to try and go after this hitter. This is the two strike approach. We want to go against them and it's up to me to remember it. And if I ever had a question, I just look over and ask for uh, a suggestion. But I think pace of play is one of the reasons people don't like watching baseball anymore. And if you can make it faster, it's going to help the game and it's going to help the players because your defense isn't going to get, zoned out. Appreciate that. Uh, Barty, back to you. Um, is there something that you believe in philosophically, you know, whatever it may be in the game of baseball that others would disagree with you on? Well, I'm not sure that what I'll come up with is something that a lot of people disagree with me on, but I do think it's something that could be affirming for others. And, and really that's just, I think the mentality of, of the team, the team, the team, and really when, it, when it's all said and done, I think a lot of what we do as coaches, you know, should really focus on what um, we can do to put our team in the best position to be successful. And a lot of times when we review or look over situations that happen within our team or within an individual, you know, we can always try to view it as what's, you know, the best for this individual right now. But in a lot of cases, it's really got to be what's the best interest of our team right now. And I think the best teams are going to be those that, you know, start to frame problems and start to frame their solving of those problems through that lens. And I, I think that's just the, the piece that in this game is so important and something that and we have to keep preaching and keep focusing on within, you know, our organizations and within our programs. Well, that's a great segue to the recruiting trail. Um, besides, you know, coaching the catchers and the infielders and help run the offense and stuff that you do on game day, you're obviously out recruiting you know, for years and years ahead. So when you're out on the recruiting trail, Barty, I'll start with you. Like what, what things are you seeing right now? Uh, maybe that you like, maybe some things that you think need changing. Good question. So we do watch a lot of baseball. I think that's something that is, is really a, a luxury of this position is getting out there and being able to, you know, see all different levels and see it throughout the year. I mean, we get to go into facilities in the middle of winter and watch guys practice and train. And then we get to go out and, you know, on the 4th of July and 
watch fireworks beyond the you know the outfield fence as we're watching games and so we're always watching and I think the biggest you know thing that still remains consistent is that people are always watching <laughs> and I think players and need need to continue to understand that is that you know we're always picking up on, on what kind of energy you're putting out and how you're playing the game. And so I think that goes as a positive and it goes as a negative sometimes. I mean, there's, you know, a couple of guys I can think of in this freshman class for us that I remember going out and watching them play. And the most exciting part about their game for me was the energy that they had out on the field, how they sprinted out to their position, how they, you know, how they ran out balls that maybe weren't, you know, hits, how they picked up their teammates those things are, are fun to watch. I think anyone can agree that when you go to watch a game and you see that kind of energy happening, you can feel pretty good about the game of baseball. On the flip side, when you go see an individual, um, you know, not handle failure well and, you know, walk out onto the field, that makes me want to pack up my chair and leave. You know, and I think I've done that in, in, in certain scenarios where I've gone to a game and, you know, I've gone to watch a guy and within the first at bat, I see something like that. and you know, it, it's, it's a, it's one of those things that is not really going to be drawn more attention, you know? And so that's, that would be something I think that can really go both ways for players um, on that end. Just um, add one more thing to that, Barty. Is, is there something, I mean, you might've mentioned it right there, but like what's, what gets a kid crossed off, right? Like obviously there's a skill set and a recommendation or PBR, whatever that got you to the game, but what's, what gets a kid crossed off? Yeah, I think, well, recruiting in general is, is a lot of um, trying to find the right fits. And, you know, I'll tell you, I think it would be a little short sighted of me to think that a cross off is ever, you know, permanent. You know, a lot of times we're recruiting guys that are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old. And, you know, you go see them in one, one game and what might cross them off for that game doesn't necessarily mean that they're crossed off for the rest of their high school career. It just means that that day we don't need to watch them anymore. <laughs> um, and there needs to be, a, you know, it changes within their game. And so I think things that, that do, you know, put a, a check or a cause of concern would be, you know, things like I mentioned where, you know, they're, they're producing bad energy for the team. They're, um, you know, dealing with failure in really, really poor ways. Uh, those are two things that, you know, right away are really visual. I think within the game, there are some things fundamentally that, that don't project very well as well. Uh, poor arm action and uh, long swings, both are things that take a long time to refine and take a long time to work on. You don't typically see a really long swing in high school, walk in and play right away at the college level. And if you have a long swing and you have a poor attitude, that doesn't bode well for grinding out the next two years to try to you know earn a spot on a team. And so those are all things that I think everything kind of is, is connected in that area. Um, and I think that the more you as a player can shine the positive lights of your game, the more opportunity you're going to have at the next level. Wags to you, uh, recruiting trail, things that you like that you see, some things that are red flags, um, you know, talked about your recruiting experience. Yeah. Jumping on Barty there, as far as the things that are quote unquote cross offs, I would say the three that jump out at me are selfishness, laziness, and lack of emotional control. Um, again, that doesn't mean you're done for, for your whole career. That just might mean I saw you on a bad day and I got to do more research on you. I got to call another coach. I got to 
come see another game, give you another opportunity. Um, but that stands out like a sore thumb. And that's something you just don't necessarily want to be affiliated with unless you're Barry Bonds. I mean, if you're that kind of talent, that's transcendent, but there ain't too many of those walking around this earth. Um, but some of the things that I see deficiency wise, I think this game has gotten a little bit more into training for analytics in showcase type settings. Like you said, PBR will kind of open the door on a lot of kids Obviously, we want a great 60. We want a high exit velo. We want a good uh, velo from the across the diamond. But can you actually play the game is what I want to know. So a lot of times that's kind of like the introduction of the book is your PBR status and what you are. And I'll say this right away, too. I don't care what you're ranked. I really don't. Um, they have a job to do and they do a pretty good job of it. But for us, as Barty said, we're trying to find fits. And you have to fit into the style that we play. You have to be the type of player that we enjoy having on our team. All those aspects have to come into play. So if it's a guy that's ranked 84, but he's more of a projection guy for us, I don't care that you're 84, right? I just want a guy that I think is going to have success both in the classroom and on the field in our program. Um, so that kind of sticks out to me. I think there's been less instinctual players of the game and more so training for the analytic piece. How hard can I hit it off of a tee? How fast can I throw it um, without any reference to the strike zone? You know, um, I think that's been lost a little bit in the game. And, and it's not their fault because that's what's readily available. And I want to say that I can throw 95 too. So I want to train for that. But at the same rate, I want to be good in the game. So I think getting back towards training towards in-game success becomes a little bit more prominent as to what I'd like to see the game turn back into. Um, and you can still do that while trying to add arm strength. There's no doubt about it, but why can't you add arm strength while still working on command or being able to throw it consistently on the bag every time, all those types of things. That's great. Wags. I'm coming back to you. Like how can the high school coach help? You know, I feel like things have changed in the recruiting process and as high school coaches, you know, the kids typically that are being recruited by either of your programs are playing some civil, some sort of travel or club baseball, but like, where does the high school coach fit in and what can we do to help our guys get to your programs? So it's obviously become more difficult for you and it's, it's not a bad thing necessarily. There's more exposure. There's more opportunity for these players. So they are playing a lot more, um, which has kind of limited, I think your ability to work with them in the summer more so. Um, but the biggest thing for me is I still rely a lot on high school coaches because you're more so the, you, I want to learn about them as a player from you, but you really can give me insight into who they are as a person and as a student and as a teammate. Because when you go play for some of these bigger travel organizations, you're good, you're not good. It doesn't depend as far as the physical part of it, but really I know they want to win, but it's, that's not the team first setting most of the time, right? That's more of the showcase. Coaches are coming to evaluate me. I got to show well type thing. Um, whereas that's where we can learn more from the high school coaches. How is he in the classroom? How is he as a teammate, right? That matters to our program a lot. We don't want, if we're going to lose, we want to be around people we can at least enjoy losing with, right? That said, we want to win, right? Um, but that's where we can learn a lot more about the person and the family and those types of things from you, because I'm not going to lie. I go to games and you can say um, emotional lack of control for players is a, is a turnoff. I see plenty of that in the stands too, you know, and 
don't, don't tell me as a coach, I haven't gone and said, Hey coach, whose parent is that? You know, like that does come into play a little bit. Does it cross the kid off automatically? No, but I just want to know because typically the apple doesn't fall too far from a tree. So if that's how they handle this, then I don't know if that's something that we want to get into. Taking on some of that baggage, right? The baggage that comes with that player. Uh, Barty, to you, like what, uh, where can the high school coach be a part of this process? I think, just, you know, communicating with, with the college coaches is a big piece. Uh, I can think of, you know, a lot of different coaches throughout the state that just do a great job of that. Um, you know, yourself included where, you know, when we touch base and, and, um, you know, I ask you how, how things going, you know, it's, it's the good conversation. You're able to communicate to me what your team's been doing and, um, who's been playing well and, and who might be good fits in the future. And so I think that open communication is the biggest piece. I think there's kids all over the state that, you know, I was joking during the, during the, the last couple of years, I was saying, you know, there's, there's kids that have been bow hunting and ice fishing all over the state for the last two years that, you know, could be the next big time prospect. We want to know about those guys just as much as we want to know about the kid that, you know, we see all over the computer. And so, there's a lot of talent out there, a lot of, a lot of leaders in place, just, you know, continue to communicate and be honest with us about where they're at. I think that's the biggest thing you can do to help, help the athletes. Appreciate that. All right. I got a couple more for you. You guys are doing great on time. I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned before as a player and a coach, you've been a part of championship teams. Um, if that's a conference championship, a regional, a sectional, you know, or even a national champion, like when you look at back on those teams, um, what made those teams so special? What are the intangibles that made them championship caliber? Uh, Barty, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so un unfortunately, I was uh, one year shy of the, the national championship that, that Coach Wags was a part of at Whitewater in 14. Uh, but really, that, that team that won the championship was very similar roster-wise to the year before um, with a couple pieces that might have been different. And, you know, I think when I look at, at that team, in addition to some of the the conference championship teams and the regional qualifying teams and uh, regional championship teams during that time frame, It was really just like a never quit mentality, I think is the biggest piece. Um, you know, all of those teams, what they had in, in common was they didn't get riled by little moments. You know, they didn't, they didn't listen to the noise per se. They were teams that were able to put a lot of that behind them and just keep pushing and, and keep stepping to the plate per se. And those I think are the biggest components. I don't know if those are things that are, you know, taught through a curriculum. I think those are things that are taught through culture and those are things that are taught through interaction, you know, and, and interaction I think is the biggest piece between all that. You look at the 14 team, you look at the 11 team, you look at even our 13 team that it really was, you know, really a, a great group of guys and, everybody within the order knew that if they weren't able to get the job done, the next guy would. And that kind of mentality was the way that we, we picked each other up. And as a player, I think that's what helped us to be a successful team. I think that a championship team only takes that mentality and puts it to the next level. And that's, that's really what I've been able to at least observe through that process. Thank you. Wags, what about you? Championship teams, what are the what are the attributes and characteristics that you've you've seen or experienced? I think it's selflessness. I think it's understanding that there is a team first mentality. Um, 
it's not always the best team that wins, obviously. It's the team that plays the best together. All right. This is a game where my best friend in high school, uh, we won the, the Legion State Tournament my senior year, and it was because he broke his finger on a suicide squeeze in the bottom of the eighth to get us the winning run. You know, like he didn't care. It hurt, but he didn't care because he got us the win. You know, those types of things like what can I do to help my team win is what matters most. And I think it's those types of people. Um, obviously, you have to have good leadership from a coaching staff, but ultimately the best teams are driven and led from within, right? They hold themselves accountable. They have high expectations for themselves. It's not a shock to them when they get there. They expect to be there. Um, I think the belief of we earned it, not, not we just deserve it because we think we're good, we earn this. I think that's huge because that is like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, I think we should be there. I know we should be there. We are there because of it. That type of mentality, I think, is what helps us win. To, to go off of that, I think, not to, not to say that you know, injuries always propel, you know, high-quality high teams, but I think back to the, the 14 championship, uh, not at, at Whitewater, but at Brookfield Central with Coach Bigler. And I had a chance to be around for the whole, you know, postseason with that team. And in the sectional, when Riley Richards breaks his hand or his wrist, whichever it was, um, and him having the, the mentality of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm good. I can get back out there, um, whatever capacity that might be. And he, he had an opportunity offensively to be a part of the state championship day, you know, playing out there with an injury. And I don't know that it's necessarily the injury that I'm trying to promote, but that mentality of, I'll do whatever it takes. You know, he was a guy that was really fast. And so he was going to use his speed and he knew that he could be an asset because of that. And that was going to help the team win um, on that same team. It was, you know, really a, a next, next guy up. You know, we had a, a tremendous pitching staff and uh, it was the third number three, technically that really came through and won the game for us, you know? And so it was, again, those, some of those things are, are definitely themes when you look at big times. All right. Thank you. Last question. Um, and you guys relatively young coaches still, um, whether you feel like it or not, but I think this question will change over time. But the old million dollar question is Brian Kane would ask, like, what, what do you know now you wish you knew when you started coaching? Wags, why don't you get us started? First off, I wish I knew all this when I was playing because it would have been a lot easier. Um, <laughs> I think it's, when you step back from your playing days and into coaching and you start evolving and just soaking up all this information, you realize how hard you made it and you didn't have to. Um, the game really is simple. It's just not easy, right? Like we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. If I'm standing in the box and there's nobody on base or there's a guy on third base, it's the exact same thing. It's just, I put the pressure on myself because there's a guy on third, right? So that's, that's the thing that jumps out right away is, man, I wish I would have known it playing first and foremost. But now as a coach, obviously, I'm pretty firm in the way that I've always thought about the game, but there's way more than one way to skin a cat, right? There's different ways to be successful. There's different ways to go about coaching. There's bunting. There's big fly. There's all types of things, right? There's strikeouts. I hate striking out. We don't love striking out in our program, but I'll, I hate to say it. There's times where strikeouts make a lot of sense, too, you know, like instead of hitting in the double play because you made contact in the inning, you struck out, you gave the next guy a chance to still drive him in. So some of those things have, have kind of helped me evolve over time. And honestly, this game is 
really changed a lot over the last 10 years, five years with analytics and all those things. So just being accepting of it and trying to learn with it and grow with it is something that I'm going to have to hopefully have to keep doing. And Barty, what about you? Have you, uh, what have you, what do you learn now? What do you know now you wish you knew when you started? I think the biggest thing I've picked up is just to teach it everything. Uh, you know, continue to communicate in-game basics and try to keep things simple. I think those are kind of the things that I look back and say, you know, when I started, I, you get caught up in a lot of the, the nuances and the, the new pieces to the game. And, you know, this game has been around a heck of a lot longer than, than me. And, you know, when you, when you, when you look at it, there hasn't been a, a significant amount of change for me to have to try to recreate something. And so I think if I can continue to teach the basics and communicate a lot of those things, uh, that's something I'm going to keep trying to do. Well, since we got you guys on here, I mean, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, like, is there anything else that we left out? Any more meat on the bone somewhere? Um, kind of empty out your pockets for uh, Barty. What about you? Like what else? Pass some advice along to coaches. Well, I, you know, I don't know that I'm the guy necessarily to, to pass out too much advice given how young I am in this game and in this profession, I think um, communication is the biggest piece that, that I really enjoy as a part of this game and something that, uh, you know, I think I've benefited from quite a bit. And I look back at a lot of the different coaches that have either reached out to me or that I've had relationship with through this game and the constant communication and the conversations is really how we've helped to, to try to find new, new ways to do the, to do the game really. And, you know, I think the, the biggest piece is to keep being involved in uh, talking about the game and that's whether that's calling about recruits or that's calling about practice philosophies or just discussing them. I think that's something that we have to keep doing as coaches is keeping an open mind and keep working through those, those things as they come up because it's a really awesome community and it's just something that's really been awesome to be a part of. All right, Wags, close us down. Give us, give us something. Leave us with some good advice. I mean, he said it pretty well there. I mean, you just reach out. That's really what it comes down to. Don't be scared to ask. I think the baseball community, not just in this state, we've got a really good organization with the WBCA, and thanks to all you guys for what you do. But this nation, the whole game of baseball, everyone wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. Don't be scared to ask a question or just say, hey, can I come observe a practice? Can I just have a conversation? And I think that's where it starts. Don't close your mind off. Always try to grow. Always try to learn and make yourself better so that in turn, you can make your team better and your players better both on and off the field. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Barty and Wags for taking time out of the busy schedules here. Uh, we recorded this episode between Christmas and New Year's, and I'm just, just very thankful that they were able to, to find some time for the show. Um, but one thing, you know, that they, they both talked about was this, this hunger to get better, this continuous learning, um, constant improvement. Now, again, these are from two guys at some of the highest level of baseball our state has to offer. And they could have taken their playing career and just said, you know what, I was, we were good, I was a good player, and this is what we did when I played. They're at their alma mater. They got a lot of street cred there. They've produced, you know, great players. Um, they have great relationships. Both of them do with coaches across the state of Wisconsin. But as competitors, 
they are finding ways to continue to learn. And, you know, we talk as coaches all the time. We want our players to put in work in the offseason and make a schedule and, and, and get better and, you know, whatever their, their uh, individual development plan looks like. But oftentimes as coaches, and, you know, if you're listening to this, you, you're probably, you know, in that growth mindset as well that you're looking for ways to improve yourself as a coach, which is going to improve you as a program. And if you're a head coach, obviously you have assistant coaches and, you know, maybe a youth program. To, to pass knowledge down and to, to um, kind of delegate some of your responsibilities. But that, that continuous learning has been at the heart of so many episodes. All right. So hope you enjoyed today's episode as we took a little bit of a different route um, into baseball across the state of Wisconsin. And until next time, have a great rest of your day.